All right, so we are in the book of John, mostly chapter 19. Your bulletin says we're in 19, verse 1 through 19. I'm not going to do that. I changed my mind. I'm going to start a little earlier, 11.55, and only go through verse 10 or 11, and then I'm going to tag on to that verse 25 and 26, which is kind of the end of the chapter. And you'll see how it all flows together. But let me, um, let me set the stage a little bit for you. We're coming down to the Passover celebration, which is an incredibly nationalistic celebration in Jerusalem, for which thousands and thousands of Jews and even non-Jews would travel and make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, causing the city of normally about 50 or 60,000 people to swell to well over 200,000. And so people are flooding into this area and camping out and taking up residence in some of the neighboring outlier, uh, outlying cities and communities um, in order to prepare for the Passover. Our passage is going to say to begin to cleanse themselves in preparation for the Passover. And as I said, this is a very nationalistic event for the Jewish people, Jewish uh, heritage. It's when they celebrate the day that they were liberated from slavery in Egypt. It's the day that God had sent the death plague upon the firstborn children, but anyone who had slaughtered a lamb and posted its blood on their doorposts and lintels, God would guard that house from death, and, it would, and, and the death angel would pass over that house and they would live. And it's because of that that Pharaoh let them go. And so there's a celebration where they're going to slaughter a bunch of lambs as a sacrifice. And I think in this one, it's like 250,000 lambs that they're preparing to sacrifice. And so they come together at a time when, as you probably know, the Jewish people are under Roman occupation in the Roman Empire. So you have this very nationalistic event under oppression from a foreign entity, you have a lot of recipe for disaster. It's like a tinderbox waiting to go off. And Jesus has just raised someone from the dead. Uh, up to this point, Jesus had done a number of miracles and signs and wonders. John says at the end of his gospel that he did many, many Miracles, but he chose the ones that he chose to write about because they specifically act as signs to point to something beyond themselves, something about Jesus, about what he's about to do. And so that's kind of the, the tack we've taken as far as this series goes. And the last big one was that he healed someone who was blind, and that caused quite a stir. A lot of people believed in Jesus, but over the course of their dialogue that took place after that, they got to a point where many of those people wanted to kill him. They were about to throw stones at him. And even those who believed were afraid to admit it because there was a threat that if you admitted following or believing in Jesus, you'd get kicked out of the synagogue. So Jesus left, went into the wilderness, is about to come back. But he had come back knowing it would cause a stir when his friend Lazarus had been dead. And this is last week's message. He raised Lazarus from the dead after being four days dead. And if blindness being healed caused a stir, this was dynamite. Uh, people from all over started coming, who were coming for the Passover, to meet Jesus, but also to see this Lazarus and to talk to him. 
They were coming not only from foreign places, but also from within. They were, it was creating quite an uproar. Now, some of these people, again, still were against Jesus. And this caused the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, um, to make a concrete plan. Okay, this is going to be a disaster. He has to die. The whole world's going after him. And so they're starting to make a plan to kill him. And that's the scene that's set for what we're going to read today. So, 1 John eleven fifty five, and then um, going to 12. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It it, it was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well, for on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. Now in verse 25, Jesus says, anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant will also be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Let's pray. Father, I need your help this morning. I need your help for the the right words. I need your help for the Holy Spirit to move through these words, to do the things I can't do. Because what I can't do is create in our hearts the treasure that you are for each of us in such a way that we would recognize that our faith and our life is never a matter of what kind of life does God owe me, but could only ever be. I owe him everything. He is everything. God, I pray that you would produce that in us today. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Timothy Keller once gave an illustration, a story about a man who had fallen over a dam in a river. At the bottom there was a whirlpool And it kept pulling him towards it. And he kept trying to swim, fighting the whirlpool current, trying to get to shore, going round and around, struggling for his life. The waters were freezing. But he could never quite get out of the current. He couldn't get to shore. 
And onlookers were gathering and they were watching in horror because there was nothing they could do as this man eventually gave in to exhaustion and hypothermia. And the whirlpool finally sucked him down only to spit him back out again about 10 seconds later downstream out of the current where he was washed ashore. But it was too late because the, the cold and the exhaustion had got the best of him and he had passed away. All this time he had been fighting so hard to preserve his life. But the irony of the story is that the very thing he was fighting against was the only thing that could have saved his life. The Christian life is kind of like that. It's a life of following Jesus. And Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Luke 9, Luke chapter 9, 23 to 25. That means that if you want life, you have to die. If you want real glory, you have to lay down your glory. If you want real wealth, you have to despair of your wealth. If you want a future, you have to surrender your future. If you want happiness, you have to stop believing that you're entitled to happiness. If you want to be exalted, you have to be humbled. In short, you have to stop swimming against the current. You have to stop fighting the thing that you think is the enemy that's going to destroy you. You have to let the whirlpool take you under. Only when you submit, only when you surrender, do you discover real life in Jesus. And in finding real life in Jesus, you discover that no gift you could ever offer, no sacrifice you could ever make, could ever be more than what he deserves. And that's what we see with Mary here in this story. So to the extent that you're still clinging on to your glory, holding up your defenses, to the extent that you're still clinging to pride, trying to preserve your name, refusing to be humbled, believing that God owes you, that the world owes you something, refusing to lay down your treasure, you haven't found him yet. You haven't submitted to him yet. You haven't discovered him yet. And that's what this story illustrates for us. He says it pretty blatantly at the end, but it's illustrated through the story of Mary anointing Jesus' feet. This chapter, John 12, is the culmination of the first half of the book of John, which some call the book of signs. The signs that point to his glory, as John says. Because all of Jesus' earthly ministry happens in the first half, and then there's a corner that is turned, and the second half is all about his last six days, leading up to the final week of his life. So we've called this series, Something New Has Come, pointing to those signs, those something old that Jesus takes and performs some signs surrounding it, transforming its meaning around himself and what he's about into something new. But next week, we'll move into a new series, still going through the book of John, but called The Hour of His Glory, because all the signs point to the hour of His glory, the cross. And verse 23 of this chapter, Jesus replies, for the first time, instead of 
my hour has not yet come, or he was referencing his hour, which had not yet come. He finally says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So all throughout, we see a contrast leading up to this between the Jewish religious elite and Jesus, and between those who place their trust in Jesus and those who reject Jesus. There's a contrast again and again. Now in this chapter, what John seems to be setting up is again a contrast. What is real purity and what is only superficial purity? What is only ceremonial or ritual cleansing and how is one actually cleansed? And that's what is set up here in this passage. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. That's the the setting that kind of takes place. And so, you have the disciples of Moses getting ready for a big event through cleansing, and you have a disciple of Jesus, Mary, who's going through some cleansing. And I looked up that word for ceremonial cleansing in that passage, and the definition gave some things that people would do to cleanse themselves in preparation for things. One was just washing. They would wash themselves or wash their clothes. One was to visit the temple in preparation and, and for cleansing. Another time was, uh, another instance is just prayers, certain kinds of prayers for ceremonial cleansing. And in particular for this one, they had a ceremony where if you lived in Jerusalem, as you prepared for Passover, you would go through the house and you would, um, with great detail, cleanse the house of any trace or sign of yeast or leaven. Because leaven in bread was a sign of impurity or sin and would spread all throughout dough. And it was a time in the year to cleanse the house of all leaven, symbolically as a a purification, a cleansing of all sin. And they uh, still do this today. They go really crazy with it. They will empty their entire refrigerator and scrub the thing down from top to bottom so there is not even a microscopic trace of yeast or leaven. So, too, in this story, there's a washing that takes place. There's some allusion to a temple that takes place. The aroma filled the house. And in the Old Testament, the only time you hear that described is in talking about the tabernacle or the temple, the the aroma of the incense filling the house of the Lord and so on. Uh, You have prayers. We don't directly see prayers that are offered. But in Psalm 141, Revelation 5, Revelation 8, the prayers of God's people are likened to incense to God. Our prayers are a fragrant aroma to God. And so you have prayers happening in a different kind of way. And then finally, and most importantly, you have something being emptied here. You have an emptying taking place. So in contrast to the external ceremonial ritual purification of the Jews in preparation for Passover, we have a deep internal purification and cleansing of a true disciple of Jesus in preparation for his death, the ultimate Passover, because he's the ultimate Passover lamb. And I just want to pause, because what we're going to see is a contrast between Jesus, or Mary actually, and Judas, between Mary uh, and the crowds later. The Greeks that come to see Jesus authentically looking for him and the crowds of people who are ready to crown him as king but with the wrong motivations. 
We're going to see a lot of contrast here, which is telling because what it says is that sometimes we think that we're clean or that we are pure or that we, uh, we, we, people can say all the right things. They can go through the right motions. Feeding the poor is important and it can be important to someone, but it can actually be important for the wrong reasons. And at the heart of it is where is their glory directed? What do they place most value in? What are they trying to preserve and uphold? Themselves or Jesus? And at the root of that question is what is their true treasure? What is the, of the most value and the most worth? Reputation? Self-preservation? Looking good in other people's eyes? Or the gift they've been given in Jesus? So you have a external fake purity and an internal real purity that's being contrasted here. The passage specifically says that this took place six days prior to the Passover. Now, one commentator pointed out that that's significant because six days before the Passover would have been when they would have started choosing and selecting the Passover lambs to be sacrificed. And so you have a a time that would last for the next five days where they're inspecting those lambs for any impurity or blemish because it had to be a perfect, pure, spotless lamb to be sacrificed for the sins of the people and for the ceremony at the Passover. In the same way, Jesus seems to be set apart here. She's anointing him. The word anointing means to cover someone with oil or something like that. And they do this as a way of setting that person apart, usually as a priest or a king. And we'll get into a little bit more of that later. But on the day that the sacrificial lambs are being chosen, Jesus is being honored. He is anointed with perfume, set apart. The next five days, the lambs would be inspected for Jesus. And over the course of the next week, Jesus would be inspected and tested Matthew is a lot more potent in his description of how they tried to find any fault with Jesus. And then finally, they would deliver him over to the Romans. But Pilate, after questioning Jesus, would come out and say, I'm bringing him back out to you that you may know I find no fault in him. A pure, blameless lamb. And at the time of his death, when Jesus would be about to breathe his last At that time, the sacrificial lambs would be slain in Jerusalem. Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Who's Mary? Mary is Lazarus' sister. She had experienced Lazarus rising from the dead. She knew what it would cost. Her hopes had been dashed. She fell at his feet and cried out to him, and then her hopes were restored. But she also knew that for Jesus to give life to her brother, it would cost him his own. So I believe that in Lazarus, Mary now sees something of what Jesus is about that most other people didn't see. She has a treasure. She realizes and knows that he's offering a gift more valuable than any other, a gift that could never be repaid. 
Mary is also a disciple of Jesus. In Luke 10, Mary, we talked about this last week, Mary postures herself by learning at Jesus' feet. And last week we talked about how that was a role that was reserved only for men. Women weren't allowed to do this. So Martha rebukes her because she's not in her place. But Jesus says, no, no, she's chosen the better thing and it won't be taken from her. So Mary positions herself as a disciple of Jesus. And when Martha comes and fetches her in their time of mourning over Lazarus, she comes and specifically says, not Jesus is here and he wants to see you or the Lord wants to see you or uh, the Messiah. You know, she says, the teacher is here. He wants you. He's calling to you. And so Mary is a disciple of Jesus. In fact, what is discipleship? We just read about it. Disciple is one who follows Jesus, gives up their life, takes up their cross and follows Jesus. But what's interesting about Mary is that every time we encounter Mary, she's at Jesus's feet. She's on her knees before him. Luke 10, she's learning at Jesus' feet as a student. John 11, she falls at Jesus' feet weeping, saying, if you would have just been here, my brother would not have died. You've abandoned us. And then John 12, she is abandoning herself at Jesus' feet by pouring out this expensive ointment. And I think that's a trajectory of a life of someone who's a disciple of Jesus. It starts by learning Positioning ourselves at the feet of Jesus, declaring him as Lord, learning. But sometimes then a crisis hits and the rubber hits the road and it looks like our hopes are dashed. And then you experience Jesus. You experience what he gives us in those times when our hopes are gone at the feet of Jesus. And that results in falling at the feet of Jesus, in total adoration and love, realizing that in Jesus you have a treasure that nothing could ever repay. A lot of people, when we come to Christ initially, when we consider Christianity, we consider Christianity on the basis of what it might do for us. It might give me a better life. It might give me a better standing. It might help me out, you know, get some spiritual balance and composure to my chaotic world. Um, It might make me look good. I need to, you know, clean up my act and get religious and look good in front of people. Christianity is never about what God can do for us as if he owes us something, as if the world owes us something, as if we are owed anything, but really it's the realization in light of what he's given, I owe him everything. There's nothing I could give, nothing I could give, no part of me that I could withhold that he does not deserve for what he's done, for who he is. Faith, hope, and love. Learning at the feet of Jesus. Having your hopes dashed and restored at the feet of Jesus. And pouring out your love at the feet of Jesus. The walk of a disciple. Being a disciple of Jesus means to place yourself at his feet in total surrender and devotion, abandoning pride and dignity at the feet of Jesus, surrendering wealth and accumulation, security at the feet of Jesus, abandoning hope and surrendering it to the feet of Jesus, and mostly laying aside our glory and surrendering that 
at the feet of Jesus and glorifying him instead. And we're going to see how Mary does each of those things here. The story is also present in Matthew and Mark. And what we read in that story is that Mary did not only anoint Jesus' feet, but she dumped the whole thing out over his head and his whole body, covered him with this expensive perfume. John only focuses on the feet. He doesn't exclude the rest of the body, but I think there's some meaning attached there. One, he creates a contrast with Jesus washing his disciples' feet later in chapter 13. When they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom, Jesus takes the form of a servant and washes his disciples' feet, a very low, low thing to do. And then he tells his disciples, now you go and wash one another's feet. And this is the only time that John actually records a disciple washing someone's feet. And it's Mary. But what we have is a picture of all-out devotion. A contrast between ritual external cleanliness and internal true purity and cleanliness. It comes down to humility or pride. And what's underneath that? Our treasure. What are we trying to protect? What's the most valuable thing? Mary knows something. She sees something. She has found something in Jesus that she is willing to make a statement here. There is no gift, no act of sacrifice, no level of abandoned dignity that, is, that, does, that he does not deserve. He is of utmost worth and value. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. He deserves it all. What's nard? Nard, that's a weird word. Apparently, nard was a very expensive perfume that was distilled from the roots of a certain tree over in northern India or Nepal. So to come over west to the Middle East here would be a long journey, and it was extremely expensive. We hear here that Mary is laying aside a massive amount of wealth. John records it as worth about 300 denarii, or one year's wages. I did some math. Um, You know, if you make the minimum wage in the state of Washington, about $12 an hour, um, after taxes, a year's wages, um, you know, the bare minimum dollar amount we're talking about here is $20,000. Okay? Now, that's the bare minimum. I don't know how much you make a year, 60, 70, 120,000 dollars, all poured out in one fell swoop. That's a, that's a car. Yeah, that's a down payment on a house that's, that's dumped out on Jesus. So you can kind of understand Judas a little bit here, saying, hold on a second. Shouldn't we budget a little bit? I mean, there might be better uses for this. That's a lot of money. I mean, there's no elder in a church anywhere that would respond to a gift like that without saying, oh, oh we... We need to allocate that. You know, we need to figure out how and where that should go to be wise with it. And they're not wrong. But this is a lot of money. This is a lot of wealth. 
She's pouring out in one fell swoop. She's laying aside her wealth for an even greater wealth. If you just give into the whirlpool, you'll get something even better than what you're fighting against. Now, this jar was probably an heirloom passed down. It probably served as a bridal dowry for the future. Nard is referenced several times in the sexually erotic poetry of Song of Solomon. And in chapter 4, one of the instances, there is a scene in which the woman is speaking, and she's talking about her garden. Whether that's a metaphorical statement or not, you can use your imagination. Um, And she talks about how the smells of her garden and of her perfume, her nard, her ointments and her aloes, draw her lover to her. Mary lays aside a hope here. She lays aside a dowry, something that would be offered to a future lover. She empties it out. But at the resurrection, Jesus encounters Mary in a garden, probably still smelling of this perfume because it would have stayed on his body that long. And what she didn't know coming out the other side of the whirlpool is that what she gave up as a hope and as a love, she gets back exponentially more with a much greater hope and a much greater love. Second Corinthians 2, 15 and 16 says, For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are an aroma that brings death, to the other an aroma that brings life. Consider Jesus going throughout this week, smelling of this sweet perfume. It would be a reminder of him as he's going to the cross of Mary's love and devotion for him. And to those who are against him, he smells funny and it's a smell of death. But to those who believe, it's a life-giving smell. And what he's about to do is a life-giving act. And that's what Paul writes. We are, as if you're a Christian, you are to be an aroma of Christ to the world. That when they see us, it's either the smell of life or of death, depending on where they stand. Jesus washes her feet. Excuse me. She washes his feet with her hair. There's a lot of meanings behind foot washing. In some senses, it was just a customary thing to do. Usually, you'd wash your own feet when you'd go into someone's house. If a person was wealthy and they had servants, the servants could wash a person's feet as a sign of honor. It was actually against the law to force your servant to wash anyone's feet because it was so disgusting. Like there's, they dump their sewage on the streets. You know the. The animals are going by. There's refuse on the streets. Your feet are filthy. And no one should be forced to wash anyone's feet. And and so this is an act that has to be completely voluntary. And And Mary takes up this act. But there's more to it than that. Genesis 3, when God curses the ground, curses man because of sin, 
He says, from dust you came and to dust you shall return. And he tells the serpent, your dominion will be that of the dust of the earth. You'll eat the dust of the earth all the days of your life. The dominion of death. The dust of the earth has a correlation with death. And so there's laws in the Levitical writings about how uh, there are certain animals are unclean or clean. And what makes a distinction is whether or not they have hooves that separate them from the dust of the earth. Therefore, they're clean. If they make contact directly with the dust of the earth, they have collusion with death in some way, symbolically at least, and so they're unclean. So washing someone's feet is to remove the dust of the earth, and in some ways it symbolically represents a hope of life, of a reversal or a release from the curse of death that to dust we would return. So as, G- as Mary is washing Jesus' feet, one of the implications is that she could be saying, instead of from dust you came and to dust you're going to return, she might be saying, as Jesus says in this book, I believe that from God you came and to God you will return as a statement of faith. That's one meaning. The other part of it is, as we said It's an anointing. She covers his whole body, not just his feet, which usually set someone apart as a priest. And the priest's role was to be anointed before they could go in and make sacrifices on behalf of the people and go into the presence of God on behalf of the people and restore a relationship with God. They had to go through cleansing. But after they slaughtered an animal on a Altar representing mankind's bloodshed that stains the earth with sin and death. And that they would have to then go to a basin of laver, or a basin of water called a laver or the sea, where they would wash the blood off of their hands and they would wash the dust off their feet. And only when they had removed the result of sin and the curse of sin, the dust of the earth, collusion with death off their feet, and the blood on their hands, the result of sin from their hands, only then could they set foot on the paving stones of the holy place of the temple or the tabernacle and go into God's presence. So Mary's doing something here with Jesus, identifying him as a priest. But if Jesus is both the lamb and the priest, then what kind of a priest is that? Because a priest goes in to make a sacrifice on behalf of the people that would only be temporary as a go-between between you and God, as a mediator. But what happens when that priest himself says, I will become the lamb for you that is slain? Mary washes his feet with her hair. In this culture, women kept their hair covered. They didn't let their hair down in public. They only let it down for their husbands. It was a symbol of fidelity and purity. Mary doesn't care if people see her as shameful. Moreover, we read in 1 Corinthians that a woman's hair is a symbol of the glory of a woman. It is her glory. It's her beauty. And Mary takes her glory, reveals it for all to see, and puts it in contact with the dust, the dust of the earth, the curse, the death of mankind. She surrenders her glory at Jesus' feet. 
and glorifies Jesus instead. For the dear Lamb of God left his glory above to bear it to dark Calvary, the old rugged cross. She's putting her glory to death because she knows that on the other side of the whirlpool she'll find a greater glory. What's your glory? What is glory? Glory is like the brilliance of something, right? It's the part of you that you, it's the only part of you that you show on your Facebook posts. It's, it's what you want everyone to see. It's what you want everyone to think about you. It's, it's what you would take pride in. Your reputation. Your need to be right. Your identity. What is it? Where is it rooted? Is it a trophy that you have in your room? Is it a, a job position? A standing? Is it your family? Your children? Is it... Uh, what? What's your glory? What do you put your glory in? What do you put your weight in? Mary abandons all dignity. She lays aside her glory. She doesn't care what people will think. She doesn't care that she is lowering herself lower than servants even had to do so. She doesn't care about her status because she has a greater treasure. And she knows that in reality, she's not losing Anything, So she doesn't have to cling to anything. She doesn't have to try to swim against the current and fight what God is calling us all to do. What he's calling us all to lay down. That pride. That glory. So Judas Iscariot says, Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. John would recall in hindsight, as keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus says. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Now, people have gotten into trouble with this passage. On the one hand, we can kind of identify with Jesus, as I, or with Judas, as I said earlier. I mean, it's kind of like, that's a lot of money. Surely it could go to some greater purposes. I wouldn't mind having a bit of it myself, right? But also, churches get into trouble with this passage because they say, well, there is taking care of the poor, and that's all well and good, and we should do that. But give it to Jesus first. Translation, our special programs, our building fund, you know, the church in some way, form, or another. And that's a dangerous place to go, and that's not what Jesus is saying, because Jesus elsewhere says that whatever you do for the least of these, for the poor, um, you've done to me. How you treat the poor is how you treat Jesus. Uh, he also quotes right here Deuteronomy, a passage which says, you'll always have the poor among you, therefore always keep an open hand. Don't deny them. Always serve the poor. So what's going on here? Judas wants to sell it for personal gain. She wants to give it up as a sacrifice to God. You can give to the poor. You can be the kind of person who looks pure on the outside. A ritually clean person. We should give this money to the poor. And you can do it for the wrong reasons. You can do it because it makes you feel good about yourself. You can do it because it upholds your own glory. 
You can do it because in giving to the poor, you could actually indebt the poor unto yourself. But would Judas ever wash someone's feet? Because the difference is Mary is willing to become poor to become rich. And that's better than just giving to the poor. Judas says, let's give her money to the poor. But he has no interest in surrendering and handing over everything to Jesus whatsoever. And that is what is better. Handing everything over. Judas' treasure was the money and his glory. But he would never become poor. By contrast, in the end of his life, he would lose everything. James 4.8 says, Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve and mourn and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. 1 John 3.3 says, All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. You see, Mary experiences real cleansing, real purity because of where she places her hope. Not in the nard, not in the wealth, not in the future that it would represent, not in the dignity that she would try to preserve. Her treasure on which she centers and empties her hope is on Jesus. And because of that, she is made pure, really pure. Not because the act itself makes her pure, but she's centering, landing her hope, giving her hope on the only one who can make her pure because she knows what Jesus is up to. She knows what he's come to give. She knows what it will cost. And she knows what it will ultimately bring to her. That he alone can cleanse her. And he alone can cleanse you. Thus, this story is really about the cross. My commentary, one commentary writes, about Mary's courageous understanding and acceptance of Jesus' death. It is a profound signal to us as readers that Jesus is really going to die. It is also a statement that no gift can be too precious that shows gratitude for what Jesus is about to do. Now I've got to pause there just for a second because I know you could get into debates. You know, are you saying that everyone here should just Give all their money away. or Give all their stuff away. Lay it all down. You know, the only restriction, the only, the only recommendation that the Bible ever gives is a tithe. 10%. Owing God everything, he does not demand everything from us. But he deserves it. And that's the point that's being made here. It's not about how much we should give or where we should give. What it is is about what's keeping you from giving. Where's your treasure? And I forgot what I was going to say. Maybe it'll come back to me. She casts her hope on him. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. 
She's laying aside her wealth for something of greater value. She lays aside her hope or love for a greater hope and love. She lays aside her dignity and her glory for a greater glory. She's not afraid to do it. How about you? The priest is anointed and washed. He's ready to enter into God's presence on your behalf and become the lamb who would die. He is the glorified one who is really holy, who is really set apart. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. What's your hope in? What do you put your hopes upon? Cast your hopes upon him, and you will be cleansed and purified by the blood of Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you for this gift, Father. Lord, I just confess that most of the time my mind is not wrapped around the extremity and the enormity of what you've given. And sometimes when times get hard or my personal glory is threatened or something financial comes up, it's so easy to say, what are you doing, God? What are you trying to do to me? As if you owe me. And what's so easy to forget is what you've done and that I owe you everything. There's nothing that you don't already own and it's all going back to you in the first place. But my pride, my glory, my treasure, my prayer for all of us is that it would surrender, that it would fall upon you, that we would yield to the current that we keep thinking we need to protect ourselves from We'd yield to your movement and find at the other end, you're waiting for us on the shore. You're waiting there and you have a wealth for us that's greater than earthly wealth. You have a glory for us that's greater than any glory we're trying to fight for up our pride. You have a dignity that you restore by giving us your own righteousness on the cross. You have a a promise of eternal life far greater than the life that we seem to be trying to preserve. So God, we surrender now. We surrender at your feet. We're the whole realm of nature mind that we're a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Make us... Uh, Be our treasure, Lord, this morning. You cause us to treasure you. Please, God, we lay everything before you. In Jesus' name, amen.